Christ is the key to the assured life. The only possible way by which you will keep walking in assurance with abounding joy, abounding in the Christian life, is to set your gaze on Christ and more of Him and more of Him. And the tendency of our flesh is always to drop our gaze and to take in something else. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. You're listening to the final segment, part eight of Living the Assured Life, a study in 1 John from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's specific text for today is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. How often do you pray? When you do pray, is it by rote, or is it a conversation with your loving Heavenly Father through Jesus, His Son? Maybe you feel like you're not worthy to call the creator of the universe your father. Or do you sometimes doubt you're even in his family? We've been assured by John the Apostle, whose letter we're studying, that we've overcome the world. So take that as a cue to do more praying to the Father in Jesus Christ. And now the conclusion, part eight of Living the Assured Life. It is one of the most common features of the Christian life. We are a praying people But don't neglect to consider that it is one of the highest privileges of the Christian life. A wrathful God, justly so, has been appeased and now he is your father. And he says, come into my presence. Many years ago when I was a young officer in the Navy, I served under a captain who was a bully There is no other way of describing his form of leadership. People did exactly what he asked because he ruled by fear. He bullied people. And I was maybe 22, 23 when I served on a deployment with him. And one of my roles as a young officer was to give him a daily brief. At four o'clock in the afternoon, I had to brief him in front of the other senior officers on board And at the end of the brief, I had to make a recommendation. He wasn't interested in problems. He wanted solutions. And my whole day would be plagued by this brief. And it lasted all of 10 minutes. And after that, everything seemed better. And I made a mistake one day. I did something that he didn't like. And I fell out of favor with him. And for the next four months, it was impossible to reestablish that relationship. It was not easy to walk into his presence. And the exact opposite is true with God. God says, my wrath has been appeased. I have none left for you. Christ took it all. And so now the thing that I want most is that you would approach me. The thing I want most is that you would enter into my presence and seek communion with me. And we don't need to worry about having the wrong words. We don't need to worry that our prayers don't sound good enough. God knows your heart perfectly, and he loves you. And he delights for you to come into prayer. 
And one of the reasons we don't pray enough is because we don't consider how great a privilege this is. John is here in this part of the book simply reminding us of the truth of the gospel. He's reminding us of the truth of the gospel and the benefits that come with it. As an exhortation for us to do likewise, if you want to pray more, think more upon the God whom you serve. Now, that would be the first basic that John gives us of the Christian life, to renew your mind to the truth of the gospel. He then moves on in verse 16 and following to give a second fundamental of the Christian life. And this is something of a a case study or an application in that area of prayer. These are perhaps the most difficult words in all of 1 John. They're not difficult to apply, but they're difficult to interpret. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And of course, the question that has been discussed throughout all of church history is what is the sin that leads to death? What is the sin that does not lead to death? One of the most helpful things to know is that in the original, there is no article here. The Greek language doesn't have a word for a, a, sin, And so literally, it's if anyone sees his brother sinning sin, sinning sin, not leading to death. This goes against the interpretation that John has in his mind one particular sin. It doesn't seem that John has a hierarchy of sins. Some of them lead to death and others don't. That doesn't fit with the grammar. Rather, it seems that John is talking about a a realm of sinning. When a brother is sinning sin of this essence, of this substance, of this nature, then you need to pray for him and God will give life. So what is that realm of sinning that John is talking about? We can get ourselves in a lot of trouble if we take the verse out of context and we simply line it up against a hundred other verses on prayer. We have to be in tune with John's theology as he's given it to us in this book and the context of the verse. And what we know from studying this book is that John loves to talk about eternal life. All over the place, John is talking about eternal life, the spiritual life that you get as you walk into the realm of salvation. So one inference that we can draw is that it's unlikely that John is talking about physical death. Most likely he's talking about spiritual death. What else do we know about eternal life? Well, those that have it, according to 1 John, are those who abide. Another favorite term of of John's, to go on in the Christian life, is to abide, is to, to walk with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in such a way that they serve you and they carry you along and they make sure that you finish the race. Well, who is it that abides? It's the brothers. When you see a brother sinning, it would seem reasonable that John is talking about sins committed within the realm of abiding. Christians sin. John is honest about that in this letter. Christians sin. But when you see a brother sinning, whatever that sin is, pray for him because the scripture tells us, here's a promise, God will restore him to fullness of communion with God. God will restore him to life on the 
that eternal life that we get on the last day when Jesus appears. If you see your brother sin, you have a responsibility to pray for him, knowing God has made a promise that if they are his, a child of God, he will restore them. He will bring them back to fullness of communion with him. And he will make sure that in in as much as he has caused them to be born again, he will make sure that they are present on the last day as one who is proclaiming the victory of Jesus Christ. That is a promise that John gives here. Now, the sin that therefore leads to death would be just about any sin outside of the sphere of abiding. That is to say, the, the, the unbeliever, the one that hasn't been born again, the one that doesn't know what it is to abide, he's out of that sphere. He's sinning, and it may be the same kind of sin, but he's in a different realm. He doesn't know what it is to abide. John is not saying there's no prayer for that one. John is saying, I'm not talking about that here. I'm not saying one should pray for that. That's not my issue right now. We know that there is a prayer for the unbeliever who who is sinning. The prayer is different. The prayer is that God would, would grant them eternal life, would open up their eyes to their sin, quicken their hearts into repentance, lead them to salvation. A different prayer. But the point here that John is making is that there is no promise concerning that person. There's a promise concerning the one who abides, the brother, the one who's received the new birth. There's a promise there that God will bring that one back to eternal life, to fullness of communion, to the unbeliever. No such promises are made. There are no promises in Scripture that God will save this unbeliever. We pray nevertheless, but what John is emphasizing here is that you have a responsibility towards your brothers and your sisters in Christ to pray for them. So here we move on to, yes, another basic of the Christian life, but really one of the greatest responsibilities that we have, a responsibility to look out for one another. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, every time. You need to say that to yourself. You need to write that down. I am my brother's keeper. When you come into membership in a local church, you are taking on the responsibility of looking out for the other members. The truth of the matter is, of all the earthly things that you have, it is your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ that is the most precious thing. Your salvation is in heaven. Jesus Christ has ascended, and we look to him daily. But look around you. Of all the earthly things you have, it is your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ that is the most precious thing you have. And John is saying, you have to pray for one another. You have to pray for one another. Now, the implication is that you would know what's going on. That those who are sat around you right now are indeed your brothers and your sisters. That they are closer to you than family. That you would know their lives. You would know their struggles. You would know their hurts. And in laboring for the gospel with them, as we thought about this morning, 
You would be quick to see when there is sin and you would get on your knees and pray to a holy God for their restoration. I think this is maybe one of the areas where we are most pragmatic in the church to do all that we can to help, but to neglect to simply pray, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that they would enjoy the fullness of communion, that it is eternal life in Christ. And notice what John has done here at the very end of his letter. All the way through, two pillars that he keeps laying out. Love for God, love for the brothers. Love for God, love for the brothers. You can't get through many verses in 1 John without reading one of those. And at the very end of the letter, in a beautiful way, he brings them together. And he says, bring those that you love before the God who you love. It's not only an enormous responsibility to be praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, but oh, what a privilege. And we are so prone to do anything but pray for them, to gossip, to judge, to look down. Pray, John says. And if this is our pattern, our way of life, this is really what defines our prayer life. We are moving on in the assured life. This is what it means to go back to the basics. And then John wraps up. Last point, pursuing Christ. He says three times, verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, we know. An emphatic conclusion. We have certainty, John says. About what do we have certainty? Number one, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Aware that perhaps his previous discussion might give some cause to think that they're free to sin. Aware that having said that there is a sin that doesn't lead to death, that is the sin that's committed by the one who abides. John quickly jumps in and says, we know that Christians don't keep on sinning. There is a progression in their life marked by holiness, and it's not insurmountable. It is achievable. Why? Because he who was born of God, namely Christ, protects him. It is possible to move forward in holiness and keep bearing more fruit. Why? Because Jesus protects you, and the evil one does not touch you. Meaning again, another gospel truth, Satan will never again have sway over your life. He will never again be your Lord. Jesus is watching over you and protecting you such that Satan will not be your Lord again. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. A very closely related truth. You have been born of God. You have a new heart. These are the new covenant realities that John has been alluding to all the way through the letter. Even though... The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Even though you look around you, outside of the church, and everything about this earth tells you that things aren't going the way of the church, John says, not so. You have been born of God. You have a glorious future. And the truth that John has been ministering to us throughout this letter is even at your lowest ebb, you are still a new creation. Even at your lowest ebb, You are still 180 degrees different from who you were before Christ got a hold of you. And so you can march on knowing that one day you will proclaim the victory. 
Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Not only that, but we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He has come and he's given you a mind to understand the truth. Which is just another way by which we keep on going. And then John closes his letter in an extraordinary way. In the clearest theological statement he's given us in the letter so far. He is the true God. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Nowhere else in this letter does he state it more clearly than at the very ending. He wants you to be certain of who this man is, the true God and the eternal life. Why? Because of the next verse. If you were to give me a letter of 1 John, and I've never read it before, and verse 21 is missing. Let's imagine it says, little children, and then we lost the last few words. I could be forgiven if I tried to finish the letter by having a guess at what John would have said, and I said something like, little children, let us love one another. Because that's what he's been saying, little children love one another. Or if I said, little children love God. It's what John has been saying all the way through, and yet what he says is completely out of the blue. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. First of all, note that John is not in the way in this letter of giving many imperatives. We've said this a number of times. He doesn't give strong commands in 1 John because he's trying to encourage. There's only a few in the whole letter, and yet he sees fit to finish the letter with one. He hasn't mentioned this word. It's not his custom to talk about idolatry. He talks about sin in other ways, but to bring this up now is completely out of the blue. Why does he do that? In much the same way as we started our evening, life you might have eternal, in much the same way, he is waking you up. He's making sure that you don't pass by these last words of the letter, as is so often our custom, to give very little attention to the final words. John says, no, no, you need to pay attention to these ones. Okay, so what are the words? Why keep yourselves from idolatry? Well, actually, it goes hand in hand with his theology from beginning to end. The very first sermon I preached in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, was entitled, Pursuing a Larger View of Christ. And here, in a negative way, he's making that same exhortation. Jesus is the true God and the eternal life. Therefore, do not... Take in something else. Don't let your gaze drop from Jesus, who is the true God and the eternal life, and take in something else. Notice he doesn't even say, keep yourselves from idolatry. He goes straight to the thing and says, keep yourselves from idols. Don't take in something else to the detriment of Christ in your heart. Don't take in something else such that you no longer have affections for Christ, because Christ is the key to the assured life. The only possible way by which you will keep walking in assurance with abounding joy, abounding in the Christian life, is to set your gaze on Christ and more of him and more of him. And the tendency of our flesh is always to drop our gaze and to take in something else, anything else. 
anything else. We can turn anything into an idol. And the second that our gaze goes to the idol and we engender affections in our heart for the idol, we've lost our affections for Christ and now all manner of problems come in. Now we're no longer walking along the path of assurance. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't give yourself to a love of fill in the blank. Watch your heart. Watch your brother's heart. Watch each other's hearts because we are so prone to idolatry. Don't allow your heart to develop affections for money so that those affections overtake and consume your affections for Christ. So that sure, you still love Christ, but he's not primary in your life. And you're not looking at those riches in relation to him. Far better to focus on the riches of Christ that you have in eternal life. Don't allow your heart to engender affections for the worldly relationships that you enjoy such that those affections overtake your affections for Christ. How sweet and how precious are those relationships. But when your affections for those relationships overtake your affections for Christ himself, now you've given yourself to an idol. And you will not walk the path of assurance. And as a Christian, you will shrivel up and you won't abound. Keep yourselves, John says, from idols. And it is renewing your mind to the gospel. Entering into communion with God, especially for one another. And pursuing Christ, that we will keep living the assured life. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this short portion of your word and the fact that you have given us an answer as to how we may know that we have eternal life. And our prayer is that we would be faithful to follow the instructions in your word from this evening, that we would be faithful to renew our minds to the truth of the gospel. Father, that we would be faithful to seek communion with you, that we would pursue that essence of the Christian life. We would be marked by prayer and especially prayer for one another. And oh, that we would pursue a larger view of Christ, that we would not give ourselves to something else, but that we would fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that very soon we will see him. We commit ourselves to you and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has just completed his teaching on one of Scripture's most profound passages on Christian living. The Apostle John begins by reminding us that we are not standalone Christians. Quote, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. It's moving to see how much value this aging Apostle, part of Christ's inner circle, places on other believers being a valued part of our Christian lives. If you've been blessed by serving in your local congregation, you can rejoice with the Apostle who insisted on the importance of serving and loving other believers. God has redeemed us to be a part of His growing family, and His Word teaches that loving our brothers and sisters is imperative, and so is discipling, 
both keys to living the assured life. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you missed any part of this series or would like to listen again, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll have access to our free audio archive of Pastor Paul's messages. And here's just a friendly reminder, if you live in the area and don't have a local church, come worship with us at 1030 a.m. each Sunday. Bethany Bible Church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as we begin a new series with part one of Stewardship in Light of the Gospel. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.